This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us on today, and a special welcome to those of you who are chiming in and listening to the podcast for the first time. I want to start off today by giving a shout out. I'm the show is showing up on several recommended podcast lists. So I want to give a huge thank you and a shout out to the folks that are doing that. Thank you to those who've been sending me feedback and talking about how the show has been impacting you. Uh, Really, it's, it's, it's nice to be valued. It's nice to be understood everybody does not understand everybody doesn't want to understand uh so it's nice when when you realize coming to the knowledge of someone who not only appreciates the show but they share how it has impacted them so just a general shout out to everybody today i'm gonna dive in quickly today because i'm gonna do something a little different we are continuing with the the sinister culture of UX. We are going to keep talking about that a little bit today. However, I've been either spending an entire show talking about one element of the list, or I might talk about two or three. Today, I want a lightning round this a little bit. I want to present several topics today, and I'm, I'm sort of pulling double duty because we got a really special interview that we want to share next week. So we're going to take another little break from the show. So I am going to double up and or more than double up today. I want to cover one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different traits associated with the sinister culture of today's UX things that are happening in the discipline, things that should not be happening, things we're having to deal with, things that we are having to endure, things we're having to navigate, that when we are in a healthier way, we won't have to deal with these things. But let us go ahead, and I got my sound effects queued up this time, so we are going to have some sound effects today, but let's dive in right away, and we're going to be moving a little bit faster than we normally do, Uh, but I trust that this is just going to provoke some thought for a lot of people, it's going to help people come into understanding about certain things, to become enlightened about certain things, and to recognize some things that we need to give attention to. These things will not fix themselves. So you ready? Let us dive in with number one for today. I think I've talked about this one a little bit, but I just want to list it separately because I it may have been listed as an addendum item or like an extra element in one of the other episodes. But the first sinister trait that I want to call out today, there is a massive failure of a lot of people in the discipline. This is something that usually happens, well, it's almost predominantly, if not predominantly, happening among the new UXers today. There is a massive failure to respect other people's time. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> it, it is... Uh, a lot of people, they introduce themselves. And I understand people are saying, hey, you should reach out to some people that are in the discipline. You should connect with them. You should talk with them. As a notion, that works. In reality, 
to a great extent, it doesn't. It's like when people connect with some of these quote unquote mentoring services and aren't really a lot of good ones. We'll talk about that in a bit, but the, the people that are the most beneficial to talk to the ones that don't, you don't run the risk of being sent askew, if you will. A lot of those people don't really have time. A lot of us don't have time. So when people ask you for your time and, and I, again, I get it when people ask for time and they want to have a little conversation, I get it, but people have no idea how many requests I get requests all the time. I got one today, uh, another one today. And sometimes I get more than one in a day. And, and we simply, a lot of us simply don't have the time. I respect the fact that folks want to talk to somebody, I still believe, I strongly believe that organic conversations, organic connections are the best way to go because they just happen. And when they just happen, you don't have to worry about getting on somebody's calendar. You don't have to worry about whether or not anybody has time to talk to you because it's just going to happen. And when it just happens, now you've got the conversation that you wanted. Now you've got some insights. Now you've got some things you can go away and apply to your career, to to broaden and sharpen your trajectory, great things that come out of the conversations when they occur. But a lot of the requests, and I, this is not just me, I talk to a lot of people who say the same thing. A lot of the people, when they reach out, they reach out as if you don't have anything else to do. And again, I repeat again, I get it, but it, it's really difficult. And, and People are telling folks they should reach out to more seasoned professionals, but they don't tell them that we don't really have a lot of time. And and it's it's painful when you get 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 requests a month. We have jobs, we have families, we have other responsibilities, and while there are a lot of us that do care about the development and the well-being of those that are up and coming in the discipline. Again, the reality is we don't have the time. Now, some people, because this is not a blanket statement, this does not apply to all the new UXers out there. Some of them understand. Some of them, when you let them know that you don't have the time, they're, they, yeah, are they disappointed? Yeah, of course they're disappointed. And, and you get it and you feel it. Some of them don't. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about everybody who's asking for time. I'm talking about, as stated, the people that do not respect the time of others. This is the sinister trait. Everybody that's up and coming, given the opportunity to speak with somebody, you're going to take advantage of that. And you're smart. That's wise to do such a thing. But the people who act like we have nothing to do, the people who will go as far as to not only ask for your time, but we'll send you long messages that are assuming you have time to look at their portfolio, assuming you have time to talk, acting as if you don't have a job. It's the disrespect that I'm calling out. And I hope people hear that because some people, they hear what they want to hear. The, the, there has to be a respect for the time. I do still contend that the organic conversations that occur are still the best. They, they, they happen, they happen quickly. They are 
very forthright. They're very genuine and, and sort of piggybacking. If I had a 1A and a 1B today, I'm going to repeat something that I said in a recent episode in the in the Sinister series where I was talking about people who they will they want to talk to you. You give them your time. And then all they do is go around to another 10, 20 people and ask the same exact question with no intention whatsoever on following the advice that they get. So please make sure you're not one of those people that's disrespecting the time of others when you're asking for it, when you think you're going to be getting it, when you do get it, make sure that you respect and show some genuine appreciation when you get it. Because it's the disrespect that is a problem. And, and there are people who don't want to give their time to anybody because they've run into so many of these disrespectful people. It is a turnoff. I'm telling you, it's a turnoff when people act like you have nothing better to do than to help them. It, that's a turnoff. And I know some people are going to have a hard time digesting this. They're going to be upset because I said it. You know, I don't care. <laughs> it's, it needs to be said. And, and, and a lot of this stuff that needs to be said that nobody wants to say, I end up being one of the people that will say it. It's not a good thing. It's not helping the person who's asking for the time. It's not helping the people that are giving up their time. Let's have some respect. Learn how to request time with respect. Everybody won't be able to give you their time. Please be diplomatic. Please be polite when you cannot get that time. We all do not have time. We don't. And when you have achieved a certain level of seniority, you're going to have the, the higher you go, the less time you're going to have. So just remember that. Always be willing to help who you can. Those of you who are in my shoes, always be willing to help who you can, but make sure you take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to help anybody. So everybody needs to digest that and uh, we move on to the next one. Now, akin to the war against seniors, which I, I talk about here and there, one of the other things, and I know I talked about how the work is done last week, and I focused on the the stakeholders and the clients and the mentality of how the work is done. This one sort of piggybacks on that a little bit because the seniors, seniors don't spitball. I mean, there's a time to brainstorm. And when you brainstorm, there's no there's no wrong answer. That's fine. There's a time for it. But when you come across somebody and they tell you they're a senior and all they ever have to offer is a bunch of spitballs. Either you have spitballs, and this is the trait, spitballs versus expert input. And the problem is that spitballing is considered to be as valuable or more valuable than expert input. This is where people don't even want to hear what, what, what real seniors have to say. They actually put the spitballing on a pedestal, and that's just downright dysfunctional. Do you want somebody to spitball when they're fixing your car? Do you want somebody to spitball when they're fixing your teeth? Do you want somebody to spitball when they're working on your lawn? Nobody values someone spitballing when they need to have expertise. For some reason, when it comes to UX and because of the siege that has been executed against UX, spitballing is put on a pedestal to the extent that expertise is frowned upon. Some people actually try to shoot expertise down. And they think that that's the enemy of good. No, no, we need to have proper respect for expertise. There's a time for spitballing. But if somebody's an expert, 
uh, they should be doing more than spitballing. They should have some solid recommendations. But all in all, spitballing should never be considered to be as valuable as, as expert input, and it should not displace expert input and recommendations. That needs to change today. All right, on to the next one. Lightning round. Got it? <laughs> this one is going to shock some people. And this did not make the original list. It was added uh, due to some conversations I had with some folks last week, just talking to some people around the UX community and just noticing not only has product really just, you just see product everywhere, sometimes even more than UX. You know what else you see all the time in UX circles today? People talking about design systems. So this trait has to do with the rise and the perceived importance of design systems. It's interesting that everybody wants a design system and it seems like everybody is building a design system. I got news for you. Get get in the Wayback machine with me today into a Wayback vehicle, if you will. And let's go back in time. Let's go back to, let's say, 2010. And 2010... Your, people are working on websites everywhere. They've been working on the same website, big enterprise websites for the last 10 years. And when working on those sites, they have standard ways that they execute buttons. They have standard ways that they, the fonts that they use, they have standard ways that they roll out and uh, the, the, the way that the video players, I used to manage video player best practices for a big three auto manufacturer back in that, in that same time. There were ways that everybody agreed that certain things should be done. You didn't see many design systems, but how the work was done, a lot of times it was embedded unconsciously. It was embedded because nobody called it a design system into the content management system. Because a lot of the enterprise websites, matter of fact, practically everybody, after a certain date, all enterprise Websites were managed through a content management system. So everything was pretty much, when you needed something, it was already in the system. So I'm going to input this video player. Or I'm going to input this side navigation, this local navigation. I'm going to input the footer, whatever it is I'm doing. All of these things were, instead of having a design system, these things were all in the content management system. And it helped us to achieve consistency in the design and make it helped us make sure that we did things in a way that was going to help optimize the user experience because you didn't have these weird one-off types of experience throughout the throughout the site. Fast forward to 2020, 2022, 2023. Now you see not only do you see design systems popping up everywhere, companies are hiring people just to work on the design system and I've been connected to some design systems over the course of my career, all after 2017, never before, none of those things ever happened before. And we had consistency. We had uniformity. We, we, we knew that, that things were going to be deployed the right way. We, we made sure of that somebody, just like they came up with UX writing, just like they came up with putting product on the pedestal, just like they came up with a lot of other things. Somebody came up with the grandiose idea, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I'm just trying to point something out here that 
all of a sudden, people decided that we need to have somebody and all they do is work on this system to ensure that we're using all the right fonts and using all the right imagery and we're using all, we're structuring things the right way. It's amazing how many things are being done in UX today that are nothing more than rebranded methods, methodologies, techniques, deliverables, things that were done 10, 15, 20 years ago. Somebody slapped a new name on it, act like they were delivering something new and like they're bringing some kind of value to the extent that now you have people that all they do is work on the design system. Nobody was ever dedicated. There was always some people who worked on the CMS, but there was never anybody that was like, that's all they did. I mean, a few companies, maybe. I I, I remember it a few times, but it wasn't what they're trying to make out today with this design system thing. I really am starting to believe, I have not reached a conclusion yet, but I am starting to believe because of what I have seen and how I've seen this whole importance of the design system thing take shape, I am of the belief that somebody put this design system on a pedestal to make themselves more relevant, to try to generate job security. And and, and it's amazing when you look at a lot of design systems I remember helping to develop one design system and I looked at the design system and I performed a heuristic analysis on it because I recognized that while they're throwing all of these elements in the design system, none of them were proven. None of them have been tested. Somebody was just deciding to come up with a system and put it in play. And that particular system was a Google system that was pretty much rebranded for our purposes. So they weren't creating anything from scratch. They were basically taking the Google Google's design system, and they, I don't remember the name of it, and I really don't care at the moment. You folks know what I'm talking about. And they were rebranding it and then calling it that company's design system and then behaving as if somebody's going to sit around and they're going to spend 40 hours a week making sure that the design system's in place. It doesn't take 40 hours a week to do that. It's, it's, it's just amazing. And... We already have consistency. If everybody followed what was presented before, if we looked at the best practices that preceded people, but people are always trying to make themselves more relevant than what they really are. And they're trying to create new things as if it didn't exist. And because, and they present it to somebody who didn't know about the other things. And then so they drink the Kool-Aid and that person is glad because they were just trying to make themselves relevant in the first place. Design systems are not what people are making out to be. It's great to have the consistency. It's great to have this this thing that makes it easier to, and and the development piece, got to back up. The development piece, the way that things were done in 2010, ensured that the development was was consistent. All that was taken care of. So all this design system stuff, there's nothing new. There's nothing new about it. (laughs) Again, there's nothing new. And, and people are acting like they've done everybody a favor. No, nope. you just did the same thing that we were doing in 2005, 2007, 2010. I was managing. I was responsible for managing a site using a content management system in 2005 for one of the nation's largest banking institutions. And we weren't thinking about it. We weren't worried about all this stuff that people were talking about. And it's funny. People keep creating all these positions, creating all these functions, and all it's doing is is – helping the organization to hemorrhage money and having 
people in places unnecessarily, that money's better spent, even on the team. You're better off having another UX person that can work on everything instead of somebody worried about how many pixels of padding is going to be. You're going to be found out eventually. The smart people in the C-suite are going to eventually find out. So we can either present quality, which has staying power, or, or create and present full positions that are going to eventually be found out and eliminated. So the choice is yours. At any rate. Let's move on to let's move on to the next one. Design reviews. Ever been a part of one before? Well, design reviews are really they're a great idea in general. It's good to be able to put more eyes on your work because a lot of times, no matter how experienced or skilled someone may be, a lot of times we're so close to something we may not see something that somebody else may see. You bring another perspective in, it just helps ensure the quality of it. So in general, design reviews are good. The problem is, and there's actually several, and I, I, this is a short list, there's a lot of people that have absolutely no idea how to perform a design review. So for that reason, the next item on this list is the rise of faux design reviews. Design reviews that aren't really design reviews. So if you have a design review and people don't know how to do it, and then you schedule it and everybody comes and nothing really gets reviewed properly. Did you have a design review? Well, <laughs> pretty much the answer to that is going to be a resounding no. You had some 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 kind of cognitive calisthenics that you went through, but that was not a design review. Until people know how to participate and really genuinely plan on participating, anything, you can call it a design review all you want. It's not going to be a design review. A lot of people engage with a design review because they just want to feel superior. I mean, think about it. Whatever you designed last week, last month, that's one of a thousand different ways to have executed that design across the board. And so you get people, I have been in design reviews before that turned into nothing but a microaggression fest where Junior designers who are not ragging on you, telling you what happened. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't have to say that, but you know, so many people are neurotic. But anyway, the there are people, they feel insecure. So instead of, I mean, if you're if you feel insecure, and we've all felt secure, we've all we've all felt a lack of confidence at some point in time in our careers, whatever it might be, whether it's a career, something in your personal life, whatever it is, those things happen. We we've been there. We all grew up, so we all had to learn how to do something. We all had to develop confidence in those things. But you don't develop confidence by tearing down somebody else. A lot of design reviews, that's all they become. And I've seen these microaggression fests where more junior designers think that you're, you really think you're going to be better by trying to make somebody you know a senior than you looking bad, look bad. That's what they do. I've seen that way too many times, not just directed at me. I've seen it directed at other people on my teams. Uh, we had to police the design reviews because people, you have to, you have to put together a, 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 it's almost like Robert's rules of order. It's like you had to have a design review rules of order checklist so that people would come in and do things the right way. You shouldn't have to do that. 
But in a place where nobody or there's somebody, I should say, that doesn't know how to conduct a design review, you have to put those rules in place or else it's going to become a free-for-all. I remember once seeing somebody come to a design review feeling insecure. And so the design review became the vehicle by which they were going to achieve some degree of, of security. So anytime anybody that they were threatened by presented a design, they would spend all their time trying to rip the design apart. They were not providing constructive input. They just, hey, person A is presenting something. I want to be perceived as being more valuable than person A. So therefore, I will rip person A's design apart. And, and somebody did do that to me once and, and they regretted it. Because when I explained things and I talked about having an understanding of the context, the requirements of the design, the problems we were trying to solve, the person was actually giving input without any knowledge of the of what it is we were trying to solve. They they were trying to give input without understanding anything about the client, not knowing the current state. They just wanted to to appear big. And they ended up feeling small. When all was said and done. They got ripped apart, and actually the person ended up getting let go not too long after that. Folks, it's it's really sad. Design reviews are a great idea, but I have, over the course of my career, I've only seen design reviews happen successfully and constructively maybe one out of five times. Maybe one out of five times. So, again, great idea, but if you don't have some rules of engagement – established that everybody agrees to, it's, it simply isn't going to work. You're better off having a couple of people you can run your design by instead of a formal, because when I say design review, I'm talking about a formal, the whole team comes together kind of thing. Those don't work. Find somebody you know you can get sound input from and let them look at your work. It's always good, I repeat, to let somebody else see your work before you move to a next phase. But that whole team review thing, that's... And that a lot of people schedule those because they're trying to make somebody on the team feel good. They're trying to make them feel included. And and all that, that uh, no, I, I'm, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. If I start talking about that, we'll just move on to the next topic. <laughs> we are in trouble today. One of the reasons that we have a siege problem in UX today is because we have groups, we have organizations and this is another one of those, I'm just going to say it, statements. We have organizations that are run by people who are trolls, and there's too many people in the U.S. community that consider these people to be viable. And so there was, I remember there was a an educational venue, and they, they said, hey, we're hiring a, a U.S. subject matter expert to help us because we're trying to build a curriculum so we can help build tomorrow's U.S. people. Like, that, that stuff... People know how to do a song and a dance. They're really good at it. And and then when the rubber meets the road, they backpedal and they do all other kinds of things. And so here's a here's a group that some people consider to be a viable educational in- entity. And they said that they were trying to hire a, a, a really good subject matter expert. And then UX, viable subject matter experts applied for the role and none of them got got hired. None of them got considered. I don't know anybody who got interviewed by them. And and they end up hiring somebody who hasn't been doing UX very long at all, is not really a subject matter expert, 
And and I mean, what were you really trying to do? So so when you have people who don't really embrace the discipline for what it really is and then represent it as such, that's just a losing proposition. So but people consider them to be viable. But the way they behave lets you know that they're not. And and, and that's really trollish to that's it's a it's a trolling characteristic to see someone who's viable to have viable people come to you and shoot them all down and then turn around and embrace somebody that was the direct opposite of what you said you were trying to find. That's trollish in nature. And another one, and man, some people really gonna, uh, not gonna like this example, but I saw recently, I mentioned earlier, and I said I would come back to this topic. I know some people, I'm going to say this up front. I know some people who mentor to certain entities in the UX world, they are viable people. They know their stuff. They're great mentors. And I'm glad that people get to spend time with them. But the organization that they mentor through is run by trolls. And I'm talking about, I was flat out say it, ADP list. ADP list is run by trolls. So you can't try to take the discipline forward. I've said this before. You can't take the discipline forward and troll. You're, you're, you can, you're only interested in one or the other. And and then I heard I was, it was so sad to see if if this again if this really is Jacob Nielsen said that he loves ADP list and thinks it's the best place for people to go to learn about I saw this and it almost makes me cry thinking about it to have Jacob Nielsen the person that he is endorse an organization run by trolls hey shame on Jacob Nielsen. It's, it's and, and ADP list is considered to be viable. They're not. They're not. They're doing too many things that are not beneficial. If you're a viable entity, you're structured properly, you embrace proper structure, you reflect excellence in what you do, and you keep taking things forward. That That's what viable entities do. And ADP list, they say you've got to have X amount of experience to qualify to be a mentor. They approve people that don't meet those qualifications all the time. And they reject people who meet the qualifications. And again, they troll. They troll people. So that's not good for UX as a community. And as long as we continue to to sanction these people, that is going to come back and we're going to get burned as a group. Not good. I know other trolls who run around the community and and <laughs> all they do is create issues and people are out there acting like they're the best thing and they've done great things. No, they're not. And, it, and I've said this before. There's so many cowards in the U.S. community. Some of these people know that these entities and these people are are problematic and they still endorse them because they don't want to say anything bad. And then they, they're buying into that that Bambi malarkey. You know, you know what that is? If you can't say anything Good, don't say anything at all Yeah, until it happens to you. Let something happen to you, and we'll see how you hold on, how fast you hold to that. There's a reason why certain dangerous components, elements, uh, traits need to be called out. People who embrace them, people who practice them. And I care about the discipline. And I'm sounding off because I care about the discipline. And so it's really sad. But again, lightning round, right? That's it for that one. For the next one, and yes, we are almost done today. We have in UX 
We have accepted gaslighting as a norm. Great to piggyback on the last one, huh? Gaslighting has become a part of the core of UX operation. It is very difficult to engage with people about UX and some degree of gaslighting not occur. It is it is a norm today, and it shouldn't be. Gaslighting is not good. And and if we continue respecting it, because people a lot of times you they see somebody being gaslit, they see somebody gaslighting, and sit there and do nothing. And the, the weird thing in it about it is, and the hypocritical thing about it, is that if they become the victim, then they want everybody to come and help them out. We need to band together. When you see somebody being gaslit, being misrepresented, being sold out, being hoodwinked, we have to say something. We we need to be able to support one another. We need to be able to defend one another when that's when that's appropriate. We need to be able to to help one another out as much as we can to to the extent we shouldn't be willing to sit by and watch somebody be misrepresented. We, we shouldn't be willing to sit by and and watch somebody be fed with inaccurate information and do nothing. There, there must be more care. I, I mean, isn't it, isn't it ironic that people will say that one of the core components that that's supposed to be at work in UX is empathy, but at the same time, uh, there's more gaslighting taking place a lot of times than there is empathy. You can't watch somebody be gaslit. You can't support somebody being gaslit and then embrace major tenets of the discipline such as empathy. Because you're not empathizing if if you either gaslight somebody or willing to see somebody be gaslit. So, sadly, again, that's a sinister trait that's at work today, and uh, we need to band together and do something about it. Akin to that one, there is too much respect for toxic positivity, which, ironically, is a form of gaslighting when you really look at it. I, I remember being in conversations, you would hear somebody say, well, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, and uh, but... That thing you're talking about, the thing that you're concerned about being a Debbie Downer, do we need to know that? Will it help us to execute better on the work that, we, that we're doing? Will we be better equipped to achieve a level of excellence that is exemplary if we know that thing that you're worried about saying? See, all of these things play together. All of these things are connected to... The toxic positivity thing. We cannot Pollyanna the thing. We cannot try to see the good in something. If there's something good to be seen, see it. But if there's something that is that makes you have us uh, uh, makes your stomach rumble, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase, something that makes you uncomfortable, it's important. It's emotionally intelligent to gauge the necessity of that thing, how critical it is, and then to embrace it and act upon it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, again, and I, I always use this metaphor, if you have a nail in your tire, just go fix it. Don't don't get excited 
about how great your car is and, and ignore the fact that you have a nail in your tire. Because if you do, it's a matter of time, potentially, until you're going to lose that great car that you love. So if there's a nail in your tire, go take it out. And interestingly, uh, nails are not respecter of persons. A, a nail can get lodged in anybody's tire. So if you have a nail in your tire, just go take care of it. When somebody tells you there's a nail in your tire, it's not personal. Matter of fact, uh, you couldn't be more respectful. If the nail is in your tire and somebody knows the nail is in the tire, then the person who knows should tell the person who has a tire with a nail in it. That's the respectful thing to do. We want you to be safe. We want you to be whole. We don't want you to be exposed to things that are hazardous. So we're going to say those things. That's not a Debbie Downer. That, that's actually, you're, actually, you're lifting the person up. You're, <laughs> you're doing the thing that's, a, that's necessary. And, and operating in UX, we've got to have thick skin. There's going to be things that we've got to face as UX professionals. There's things we have to tell other people as UX professionals. And if we're embracing toxic positivity, not only are we going to miss a lot of opportunities, but we're going to expose ourselves to hazards and failures and potholes and pitfalls that we could have avoided. So uh, beware of toxic positivity. But unfortunately, there's too many people that respect it, who demand it, and they're addicted to it. And and as soon as you counter that toxic positivity, as soon as you try to let everybody know there's a nail in your tire and you become the bad guy, um, no, not so. Not so. We can't operate like that. Last one. So the last one, I'm, I'm happy. Wow, I made it through <laughs> this whole list as we did lightning round today. Uh, we sort of hinted at this one throughout the course of this episode, but we live in a time when neuroticism is in overdrive. That's the final trait for today. Neuroticism is in overdrive. Now, somebody says, what is neuroticism? Well, according to Psychology Today, they refer to neuroticism as one of the big five personality traits. I'm not going to get into what the big five are because that's going to, it's going to take too much time. I won't be able to lightning round it if I do that. Uh, but it's a tendency of someone to engage more in anxiety, depression, self-doubt, and what psychology today refers to as other negative feelings. When you look at some of the traits, the personality traits, neurotic people are easily irritated. They are hypersensitive. They are emotionally volatile. And, and this is, as was mentioned, this is the self-doubt crowd. Now, ironically, people who doubt self, and people have heard me talk about imposter syndrome. It's really not a thing. But that's what people have self-doubt, and they call it imposter syndrome. So really, and self-doubt is also a normal thing. We've all gone through it. We will go through it. All we have to do is be is exposed to something that we're not familiar with or confident in, and there's going to be some self-doubt. And, and then a lot of people, they I have seen people 10 seconds into a presentation on imposter syndrome claim that they have imposter syndrome. They just have self-doubt. But really, they very well may also be neurotic. And it's difficult to be neurotic and excel at UX because somebody says they don't like your design. Now you're now you're irritated. I saw a person once get so angry 
that some people didn't like their design, their recommendations, and they turned beet red and they were trembling. They were so irritated and it happened so quick. We've all felt to some degree like that at some stage because when you first come up in UX, we don't learn that. And eventually you have to learn that everybody's not going to like what you recommend. And, and your recommendation could be this spot on. It could be perfect. You have to learn to not be married to your designs. We have to have thicker skin. So we can't be irritated, easily irritated. It will be irritation. That, that just comes along with UX. But if you're irritated very easily, that's a problem. That's, that's more on the neurotic side of the house. We shouldn't be hypersensitive. We shouldn't be taking rejection of our work personally. We shouldn't be getting upset because the company won't get us the tools that we feel we need to do our job. That's no, we don't need to, we don't need to go there. We don't, we shouldn't be emotionally volatile. I've seen that over the course of my career where people are just the person I was talking about, so angry that people shut down their work and they were trembling and they were red. I mean, literally the person just was so angry that, that they were just turning red. And then this thing where people, uh, I told the story before about the person who, who said that I was difficult to work with. And I'm going, wow, that's interesting considering the fact that we haven't worked together. So what are you talking about? And when we dug into it, we found out it wasn't that the person thought that I was difficult to work with. The person was afraid of me. And they were afraid of me because they saw me talking about posers, retrofits, and upstarts. And so they went to the manager in tears, fabricating things, making up things, coming up with scenarios in their imagination, and then going to somebody as if something actually happened. Nothing actually happened. That was a neurotic episode that that person had. They were, they were drowning in self-doubt. That was a demonstration of emotional volatility. They were being hypersensitive instead of, hey, Darren, I'm uncomfortable. Help me out here. And I would have done that. But instead, they decided to throw me under the bus and make me the sacrificial lamb because they were engaging in a very emotionally unstable scenario. I'm just calling it what it is. And, and some people say, oh, you shouldn't call it that. It is what it is. And, and that's one of our problems today, too. We don't like to call something what it is. So. These things that I'm calling out, if I mean, if somebody's neurotic, they're neurotic. I know a lot of people that used to be neurotic. They're not anymore. So you can actually overcome it. Anybody can overcome it. Emotional intelligence, that's the antidote for somebody being neurotic. And so as many of the authors today who talk about the subject, the experts on emotional intelligence, they will tell you anybody can grow when it comes to emotional intelligence. So just go ahead and grow. It's not a problem. So these are the the eight things that I wanted to cover on today. Again, we've got a great interview lined up next week where uh, Steve Portugal, I talked to Steve Portugal, and, and it's a fantastic, fantastic session. And we've got that on tap for you next week. So we're going to take a break from talking about the sinister culture of UX, the traits associated with that. Uh, we hope you got something out of this. We hope that if anything I talked about is something that's happening to you, 
I hope that I'm giving you some things to think about. I hope I'm giving you some ammunition to help you to overcome some of these things. I hope that I'm helping some people to pull their head out of the ground because <laughs> these things are real and we've got to deal with them. And if you don't realize it's there, if you don't acknowledge it, you you won't overcome it. it it's that simple. So, so please understand the heart behind presenting the sinister culture of UX and let's get over these things and let's make the discipline great. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for today. So this is Darren Hood, the host of the World of UX, signing off. Until next time, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.